All right, so as we've been in this series, we've been talking about, you know, what happens one minute after you die. And today we're definitely diving into kind of one of the hardest weeks, in my opinion, to talk about and dive into this subject. The whole reason that we have gone into this, though, is because of this point that we've been making from, from day one. What you believe about the afterlife determines how you live your life. If you believe that there is nothing, if you just become warm dirt, then this life is really all there is. Well, then eat, drink, and be merry. Sex, drugs, rock and roll. Just live it up the best that you can and get what you can while you're here. Kind of the smoke them while you got a mindset. But if we do believe that there is something after this, that, that we actually were created for something more, then maybe that changes the way we do what we do. And so we have been talking about this reality, and today as we get ready to dive into hell, I'm going to circle back to a point that we've made in this series already, but I have to unfortunately make again as we get ready to dive into this, not to scare you, but to wake you up to the reality that Jesus makes us all wake up to in his word. And that reality is this. There are going to be more people going to hell than there are going to heaven. Now, I know online, some people just now said, nope, I don't want to hear that. I, it's, I haven't even had coffee yet, and you're telling me really terrible news. Uh, some of you sitting here right now, like if it wasn't embarrassing, you would maybe think about leaving. And I, honestly, if those were my words and my opinions... I would be okay with you doing either of those things. But they're not. They're Jesus's. And because they're Jesus's, it breaks my heart that those are maybe things that that draw us away or or take us aback. And so I want to take us to a place where we realize that Jesus made that point really clear. In Matthew 7, 13 and 14 is where he said, Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many, many enter in through that. But then he said, small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Friends, I don't tell you that to make you doubt your salvation. I don't tell you that to make you go, oh, man, am I really saved? Am I one of the few? I don't, I don't necessarily tell you that to make you go to those places. Though if you are, I think that's you know, maybe a good sign that you, in fact, are saved if you're thinking those things and processing through those things. I tell you those things, for one, if you're a believer, to realize that, as you're going to see this in the story we get into today, there was a man who felt really surely that his eternal destination was set up, squared away, and it was in a really happy place. And he found out otherwise. And so I say that to say it is not uncommon for this life to end and people be surprised about what their afterlife looks like. We see that all throughout Scripture. Definitely off the lips of Jesus. So I want us, I want you to make sure that you are on the right side. Secondly, I talk about stuff like this, and we go to places like this because if we are secure, and we, we do know that that's where we're headed, and that's where we're going, we, we lean into and we talk about hell, and we hear this as believers to now go, that is that reality. I have got to wake up and realize that that's actually what's happening, and so my life here on this earth should look vastly different. If I really think my neighbors and my friends and potentially even family members are headed to that place, then I should do things differently with my life. I should drop what I'm doing. I should stand up, get out, and go because you know enough about the gospel already right now before I finish this sermon to lead someone out of hell. Most of you in this room. And so now is your free pass. Log out. Get up. Go out. If you've been telling Jesus for a really long time, no, mm -mm, I don't don't want to tell him. I don't want to tell him. Like, here's the deal. 
people we love are headed to a place where Jesus is not. And my hope today as we lean into this topic, it makes us address the way we deal with the people who do not know Jesus differently in our lives. So we're going to dive into this. And right off the bat, as you maybe begin to have your wheels turned towards people in your life who don't know Jesus and who don't have a relationship with God, maybe you begin to ask the question, well, why does hell even exist? Like, why is there a place where people who do not believe in Jesus go, and it's a place of torment, pain, and punishment, according to God's word, and again, we're going to get into more of that as we go throughout today, but why does something like that even exist? What's that there for? First thing I, I want you to know, and this is fundamental to being able to understand this today, I believe, is understanding that first and foremost, why does hell exist? To answer that question, I would say, one, for God to deal righteously with Satan. I did not say for God to deal righteously with you. So why, did, why was hell started? Why, why, was it, why, why did it begin? Like if you go back to the beginning, you read in God's word, and you see what God created in, in the garden of Gethsemane. And there's this beautiful, amazing place for his creation to enjoy who he is, to, to be able to spend time and to connect with him. And there, as we read through Genesis you know, 1 through 5, you don't see God letting people know. Saying, Adam, Eve, there's this tree, it's good, it's a tree of life. And then there's other tree that you can't eat from. But also, just know, I've already made this place. This is a really terrible place. And if you don't do what I told you to, you're going to end up at that really terrible place. I've already got it prepared in advance. Like a backup plan, if you will, for when you screw up so that I can punish you. That's not the way our God from the beginning worked. So we have to understand that, that hell was a place that God sent and banished Satan to. It, it's a, an originality. It is a place for God to deal righteously with Satan. Now again, in our theology, the way we believe and the way we interpret Scripture, we believe that, that Satan was, was an angel, the angel in heaven, Lucifer. He, he was one of the, the most you know, accepted, admired, and adored angels in heaven, and he thought that more attention should be coming to him than to God. And so he rebelled, and he led a third of the angels in heaven to rebel, and God banished them out of heaven. And so they had to have some place to go that would be their eternal place of punishment. We see this in Revelation 20, verse 10. It says, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown, and they were tormented day and night forever and ever. So first and foremost, we've got to understand that our loving God did not just go, you know what, I'm going to make hell from the get-go, this place where anybody who doesn't listen to me goes. No. He had to punish a fallen angel for what he had done. So he sent him there. Secondly, why does hell exist? For God to deal righteously with those who reject Jesus. So as Satan slithers up, gets Adam and Eve to fall, they get to the place where now they're aware. They get to this place where now they, they understand good and evil. And through one sin through Adam and Eve, through their mistake, now sin has entered the world. And now we don't just choose sin, but we actually inherit a broken, fallen, messed up sin nature. That you don't have to teach a toddler to be sinful. That they just steal and, and scream and wail and are greedy all on their own. Even your precious ones. That's just how they are. We inherit this sin nature through our forefathers, Adam 
and our foremother, Eve, our original parents, we inherited this sin. And because of that inheritance, there has to be something done to pay for that sin. You see it even very right there at the beginning of the garden. You see Adam and Eve. God tells them to go and cover up. But they don't go cover up with fig leaves. What do they cover up with? They have to kill an animal. Blood has to be shed for them to be covered. In that moment, there it's foreshadowing what Jesus would ultimately come and do. And what I want you to understand here, because we can hear a point like this and go, man, that's still really rough. Like, how can a good God, just because somebody didn't believe a thing about Jesus, how can he send like, man, you could be an amazing person. You could, you know, help old ladies cross the street and, you know, give money to all the right things and never say a cuss word and never get mad in traffic jams. And like, God, just because you didn't believe in Jesus, you're going to hell? Man, that's rough. And I agree. That's rough. And I understand how people could ask, how can a a loving God send good people to hell? There's this fundamental breakdown in that question. And it's when you call people good. The Bible makes it really clear in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, that for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory glory of God. What that means is every single one of us, even the one that helps the old lady cross the road, not just the rapist, murderer, and terrorist, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What that means, when it says that we have fallen short, it means that we can never get to it. That the heavenly glory of God is something that you on your effort, you're on your best attempts, you're on tithe every single week, come to church, have perfect attendance, you on your own doing just those things would still fall short, miserably short. And so it's not a matter of the amount of sins we have committed. It's a matter of who we have committed the sins against. Rustin Hancock is uh, Nathaniel's dad. Him and I are great friends, part of our community group. We do a lot of uh, working with our kids around baseball and different stuff, and he leads our community group, uh, which is awesome, but sometimes awkward to be the pastor in the community group because, like, sometimes in the notes, it's, Trent had a profound statement today about, well, and I'm sitting in group going, that was profound. Um, <laughs> it's weird, but it, it works. We, everybody, they know how dumb I am, really, and so they know I'm, you know, they see me at, you see me at my best up here. I'm not really that best, uh, but they see me, uh, you know, in all the other ways. And Jessica's in the group, so she lets them know real quick. Um, <laughs> so say I go up to Rustin, and I just punch him in the chest. Like, you know, today we may go to the ball field or something, and I just punch him pretty hard in the chest. Just like, pow, just hit him right there, good in the chest. Like, and like, not like, a, hey, buddy, congratulations punch, but like a, Sah! like, catch him, out, catch him off guard. Like, he's going to be startled a little bit. He's going to be like, what's wrong with this guy? Like, he's weird. Like, this is the first time that something like this has happened. This is odd, okay? And now he may, like, punch me back. He may be angry. He may stop letting me, you know, hang out with his kid because he thinks I'm a weirdo. Um, there will be, you know, small repercussions, but most of all, probably because of our relationship, things will go back to normal. Now, um, there's a man at this church. His name is Bill Dodd. Bill Dodd is uh, a veteran of this country. He, he's what a lot of people consider, you know, a hero. He, he's a man who's been injured in the line of duty. Uh, he's also a man who I think probably could, you know, and again, I'm in decent shape, and he's, you know, an older gentleman, but I still think he could probably take me down just because he knows some old man jujitsu-like stuff, and I really believe Bill Dodd, um, through his military training, through his all sorts of trainings, if he didn't take me down then, he could definitely take me down later. Um, I know that would be the case. And so if I came up to Bill and just, ah, just got him, and I did it maybe in church, like if I walked back to his Sunday school class, he's leading right now, and I just gave him one, like I think the class would be in an uproar. And it would be negative. It would be way worse than if I had just punched Rustin. But say I snuck into President Biden's inauguration. 
And I got past all the gates. I got past all the military people. I got past all of the Secret Service. I got past all of them. And I got up to President Biden. I even got past Bernie Sanders just sitting there chilling. I got past <laughs> Bernie Sanders too. I got past everybody. Bernie didn't even let know. Hey, there's a crazy guy coming. Like he just stayed, just mittens crossed. And I make it all the way to President Biden. And I just, <laughs> just get President Biden. You never see me again. I'm in a hole under a mountain somewhere forever. And see, as silly as this is, that's the way we look at sin. We fail to realize that it has really nothing to do with what the sin is. It's who you did it to. And friend, who you've committed sin against is a holy, righteous, perfect God. The person who made those mountains that I would be hiding under if I had punched a person by. The person who created and knit you together. The person who sent his son to die on a cross for you. The person who is capable of putting all the moon and the stars in the sky. Who spun our planet into existence. The person who can, inside of a mother's womb, create a baby. Bring life from life. And allow that life to be born. That's the God we sin against. So it has nothing to do with what you do. It has everything to do with who you do it against. And to say that how could a good God hurt, do, or do anything to, to a good person is a bad argument because of how good of a God he really is and how bad of a person we really are. Not because of the amount of sins that we've done, but because who we did them against. So when we talk through those two things, that's fundamental for understanding kind of where we go in this passage and, and how we address this. Another thing I want you to understand is that in regards to hell and the conversation we have around hell and understanding the doctrine of hell, it's critical that you understand that the person who talked about it the most was not Moses, Abraham, Peter, Paul, Timothy, none of these guys. Now they talked about it, but nobody in Scripture talked about hell more than Jesus. Jesus talked about hell more than heaven. And so it may be easier to like cloud our reality around hell if somebody else had been the main one talking about it. Like if Jesus had just talked about heaven and how great things are and how much God loves you and how much care he has and how great of a father God is and Jesus had just kind of painted this big bright sunshine and rainbow thing and never ever talked about hell and Paul was just like this guy who had really bad you know, you know, morning breath and was just really angry and crotchety and he was just like, ah, hell, 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 hell in all of his letters. But that's not the reality. Jesus, tender, loving Jesus, meek and mild, holding lambs and that painting that you had in your Sunday school classroom, that Jesus talked about hell more than anybody else and more than he did almost every other topic that he addressed while he was on earth. So we should pay attention. When he was teaching about it, one of the places, and this is where we're going to go today, he talked in a parable. And there's a parable I'm going to lead you through today. Um, remember, a parable is a little story with a big truth. Look at you guys, okay? But we're going to dive into this parable today. It's called the parable of rich man and Lazarus. If you've got a Bible, go to Luke 16. So we're going to start. Luke 16. Luke 16, 19, and 20. And for those of you wondering, my lower half has just now became dry. <laughs> Let's get into God's word. Luke 16, 19, and 20. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen, 
and lived in luxury every day. So pause right there. If you're the original group of people listening to Jesus tell this story, like we hear it and it's like, why is this dude like purple? Like I don't like I don't have any purple things in my closet. That's just not me. So this guy is not, Jesus is not talking about him being flamboyant or having a thing for Barney attire. He is trying to make a point here that this man is lavishly rich, like above and beyond rich. If you had anything purple in that day and age, that meant it had to be dyed by this very, very expensive dye, and that's what made it purple. And it doesn't just say he's got one purple jacket. It says that this man dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury. And Jesus, again, he's telling a story. He's trying to get us to pick up on details so that we don't miss anything that's in there. He says he dressed in that every single day. He's got a purple jacket for Monday, purple jacket Tuesday, purple jacket Thursday. Like he's always dressed to the nine to show. Again, why do people dress like that? So that people see them. Like I, I want to show the world that I'm rocking Gucci and Louis Vuitton and all whatever else it is, those are pretty much the only two that I know. All the everything from Italy. I'm just I want to show people that this is what I can afford, so that you all see it and know the life that I've built. Now, if you're an original listener, Jesus' original audience, they hear this and they don't go, "Oh, that flamboyant rascal! What a jerk! He could have taken that money and helped other people." They hear this and go, "That man is hashtag blessed." What a great guy. God loves him. God cares for him. God has obviously poured out blessing on him because he's a righteous man. He is being blessed by God. So that's the first character we get introduced to in this story. A nameless man who is over and above beyond wealthy. Next, at his gate. Now, whose gate was it? And now, what did he, and he had a gate, okay? So he's big enough, baller enough to be able to have a really nice house and a gate around that house. Now, at his gate, there laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. So in that day and age, people who were, who were very wealthy, what they would do is, is after they would finish eating, they would actually take the bread from what they had been eating and they would actually, because they didn't have a lot of you know, tableware and, and napkins and tablecloths and stuff like that, they would actually use leftover bread from the meal to be what they would wipe their hands with. And so they would wipe all the leftover things from the meal. They would actually use the bread to soak up all the oil and wine and whatever from what they ate. And then they would just kind of let that fall, and the dogs would eat that bread. And so this man is longing to even get that. It says, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Again, Jesus is trying to evoke emotions. He's trying to paint a detailed picture of who this man is. Now, in their society, they would have seen this man before. They would have known, and again... I do believe Jesus is still telling a parable. He's not talking about an actual man named Lazarus. But they had seen they would see a Lazarus on that corner and that corner and that corner. They see Lazarus all around town. Men who would sit outside of people's houses, begging and begging and begging. The whole dog's licking the source thing. That's kind of gross, but it's in there. And I think Jesus is trying to paint a picture. Now, again, if you hear that and you're the original audience, you go, "That man is a sinner. That man is cursed by God. He is unrighteous." And God's favor is not upon him. And so there's definitely a big difference between these two men. One is incredibly wealthy, one is incredibly rich, and one is desperately, desperately poor. Now, you know where the story goes. You know one goes to heaven and one goes to hell, and it's not the one that you would think. But I don't want you to think that the message of this parable is rich people go to hell and poor people go to heaven. That is not the point of this parable. The point of this parable is found in the name Lazarus. 
If you look at this from the very beginning, what you see here as this parable begins is you see that one man has a name and one man doesn't. And the keys to hell and the afterlife and the keys to heaven and the afterlife, I believe, are bound up in what Jesus is trying to teach us by giving one man a name and letting another man stay nameless. The word or the name Lazarus means God is my help. See, Jesus is not pulling any punches. He is intentionally trying to explain something to this crowd, to this audience. And he's trying to help them understand that this man had found his security, his hope, his purpose. And the reality that while nobody around him may have been willing to help him, he was one who was helped by God. Now again, you look at the story. And the rich man, he goes nameless. Why does he go nameless? He's nameless in this story. And I believe he's nameless in regards to the afterlife because he made a name for himself in the life he was living. In his society, everybody knew he was a dude that wore purple every day. He had a name for himself. He had a house with a gate around it. He had taken his wealth and he had made a name for himself. And Jesus is trying to make a point here that the man who had a name that nobody else knew, the poor man, is a man whose name found it in heaven. And so I ask you the question. If in this story, Lazarus' name means God is my help, my question to you is what is your help? Like his identity is bound up in the fact that God is what helps. God is his namesake. God is his security. God is the only hope that he has. My question to you is, what is your name? Is your name mother? Father? Coach? Boss? Entrepreneur? Teacher? Doctor? Lawyer? What is your name? See, there is a divine connection between what sends you to hell and what God is your help. See, many people have let money be their help. Just like this man said, my help, my source, my security, my identity comes from how much I have. And that is what I am known for. In the same way, we do it. You know, you can take it out of money. Some of us, I don't want to be known for having a lot of money. I'd rather be known for being a great dad. And you know, and here, a good thing that is not a God thing can still send you just as fast to the gates of hell. Because any time you take something and you make it your ultimate identity, then you are in danger of missing out on your true identity in Christ. Your true identity is one that can only be helped from God. That if I'm going to get to God, that I'm going to cross over from death into life, it's going to be because God helped me get there. And so for us, whether it's all I am as a mom, all I am as a caretaker, I feel like that's all I do. I just meet needs, I just put food on the table, I just make sure you know, everybody's blood pressure is good, I make sure everybody has their pills, I make sure all this is taken care of, whatever it is. I'm just a student, I'm just a kid. I'm just ignored. I'm just someone who is a burden to my family. Whatever that is. Let me ask you this big question. What is that thing? Maybe it's a part of your identity. Maybe it's a part of who you are. What is that thing in your life that it was taken away from you, you would lose your will to live? See, that's the thing that is your help. And that's the thing that is dangerous to becoming more of your identity than Christ. Is it your kids? Like, if you lost your kids, would you lose your will to live? 
and as scary and as terrifying as that is, and as much as I would wish that on none of us, if my identity is solely in being dad, then my identity is not solely in being a son of God. If my identity is just in being a boss, well, then my identity can't be in being a servant of the Most High King. If my identity is just in being a businessman, well, then I'm going to lose my identity of being about my father's business. And see, what I believe Jesus is trying to point out to us here is that when we put anything in our lives ahead of the God who is helping us into eternal life, you are in danger of never getting there. So my question is, who are you? Who are you? Are you a Lazarus? Are you one who God is helping? Or are you desperately trying to help yourself? The story goes on. And again, you can stop there and you've got the whole story. But the story goes on. Luke 16, 23. Or 22 and 23. But the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. That's in this story, the the picture and the illusion of, of going into a heavenly place. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. Now again, the original listeners hear this and go, no way! There's no way! He called him son of Abraham. Like, like he, God, what, what, this is impossible that this guy's here and this guy's there. This is making no sense, Jesus. Did you get your story right? Are you having dyslexia in this story? And Jesus goes, no. Let me continue on and tell you what's going on here. Verse 24. You're getting a dialogue. You're getting a lesson into what this um, rich man is now calling out to God. So he called out to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. This man, it's it's, it's terrifying, is now desperate for one drop of the most common element of life, water. Verse 25, we get the dialogue going kind of back and forth here. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now, he is comforted here, and you are in agony. Which begs the question, how relentlessly are you pursuing surrounding your life with good things? And has that got in the way of you pursuing one great thing? He says that if you seek to have the best things in this life while you're experiencing this life, you're going to have your reward only in this life and not in the life that is to come. Verse 26. And besides all this, he says on top of that, between you and us is a great chasm and it has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. And again, we get a little bit of a dialogue here going on. He says, I beg you, verse 27, I beg you, Father, Send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they may not come to this place of torment. He realizes, man, I don't want my family to end up here, but he's also realizing they're just as wicked and sinful as I am. And what the problem is, is not that they're wicked and sinful. It's that just like I am, they don't realize it yet. They think they're under God's favor. They think they're under God's blessing. But the reality is they have made temporary things, ultimate things. And they have helped themselves. 
and they have not been ones who have been helped by God. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. This is an amazing passage. Let me, let me unpack something that's happening here that you can, if you're glancing through this, you miss. This happens before or after the resurrection of Jesus. Before, okay? Jesus in two ways, is actually calling his shot and is foretelling what's about to happen in this story. He's foretelling and he's calling the shot of two resurrections. And he's telling them, this guy who's, you know, he's telling this story. And again, he's talking to religious people who think that just because of their religiosity, they're getting a free ticket to heaven. And he's saying, you're you're missing the boat here, guys. Let me explain something to you. If you think that someone rising from the dead would magically change you guys' opinion, you're off. And then a few short days later, Jesus shows up to the house of three of his best friends. One of them has been dead for multiple days. You want to guess what his name was? Lazarus. Jesus shows up, raises Lazarus from the dead. And you want to know the, real, the true miracle. And you go back, you look, listen to different scholars, you listen to things, and you even look at, at the Gospels. The true miracle that really was the straw that broke the camel's back was Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. That was when all the religious leaders, all the scribes and Pharisees, they saw that happen and the swell of Jesus' fame grew to the point where they knew they had to do something. And not only did Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, but a few short days later, he himself rose from the dead. He's telling them, someone resurrecting from the dead isn't going to change a heart that is dead set on its will being done on earth instead of God's will being done on earth. So as I look through the story, I want to show you four lessons that we can learn about hell quickly as we come to our close here. The first lesson that we learn from hell is that when you're there, you're aware. Like when you're there, you know you're there. We see this in the story. The man is is one, he's fully aware that this is a place that is no fun. He's in agony. He's weeping. He's saying this is terrible. He's wanting one drop of water. While he is also aware that he is there, Two, he's aware that he belongs there. What do you not see in any of this story from this man? You see him arguing back and forth with Abraham in this heavenly place that he's at. But you know what you don't see? You don't see, I'm sorry. I messed up. Forgive me. Have mercy on my soul. Forgive me for this. He's not trying to get out of where he's at. Matter of fact, he's trying to get Lazarus into where he's at. He's there, he's aware, and he realizes this is actually how it should be. So when you're there, if you go there, I think that's going to be what we see. I think Jesus is trying to make that point really clear. The next thing is if you're there, you're not going anywhere. There is no circle holding pattern that we can get in where if people who are still on earth pray long and hard for us, we can magically bubble out of hell. And go to heaven. When you're there, you're there. Made it really clear there in verse 20, 24. There's, there's, or in verse um, 26, there's a great chasm. One that nobody can jump. No matter how hard they would want to. There's a great chasm. Nobody's getting over that chasm. The only thing that would allow you to get over that chasm would have been putting faith in Jesus. And because you didn't do that, nobody's getting over this one. It's permanent. 
It's irrevocable. And because of its permanent nature, I think it should wake us up to our nature as procrastinators. Like, we procrastinate with someone's permanent destiny. And that's dangerous. And so, again, I'll just remind you of the permanence of hell. And let that move us from a place of procrastination to maybe a place of urgency. To where we realize that, man, if, if Satan is real and hell is real, then Satan's best strategy is to, one, get us to believe it doesn't exist, and then, two, if it does exist, get us to never, ever think about it or talk about it or understand how serious it is. And so if we are those type of people and you're just, oh, man, heaven's going to be so great, I can't wait to eat grandma's you know, peach cobbler again once I get up there. Like, if that's all we're thinking about and not the realities and how horrible hell actually is and the fact that people we love, people we work with, people we go to school with, people on our teams are actually going there, it should change what we do. It's a permanent place. The third thing that we see and we learn from hell is that you become more of what you were. When you're in hell, you become more of what you were. See, we see here in this man, what, what is he doing? Lazarus was a guy who sat outside of his house, outside of his gates, and begged for stuff. And what do we see him doing? As soon as he gets there, he starts bossing Lazarus around like he's in hell. Lazarus! Would you just come drip some water on my tongue, please? Like, get it down here. And then, Lazarus, hey, okay, Abraham, I get that you're in charge, and I know he's beside you and all, he's at your right hand, and that's kind of a place of authority and everything else, and he's all up in there in that kingdom, but can you, can you boss him? Like, I'm going to tell you to tell him to go and do some things, go tell my family this. He's still someone who's trying to work the system to get it to work in his and his family's favor. See, a lot of us, we have this idea of hell like, God's in heaven and he's, there's, you know, hell is just this, this big hole and, and people are trying to crawl out of it like, God, why'd you let me in here? And God's just up at the top just stomping on their fingers when they make it all the way to the top and saying, get back in there. But that's not hell. I, I really believe this based off of sin's nature in our lives. That there's no one trying to get out. It's kind of like an animal. And as much as I don't like cats, if one of you who owns a cat, you, you called me and said, my cat is trapped in the sewer and it's down there and it's this disgusting and I, I can't get down there and you know, you're a brave, you're such a brave man. Would you come and rescue this, this cat out of this sewer? And, and because I, I love you and not your cat and I respect you and not your cat, I, I would come to your home and I would do my best to, to sink down and open the sewer lid and climb through the things that are in sewers like rats and feces and I would dig down into this place and I would find your, your small cat that you for some reason did not get declawed and I would reach down <laughs> and I would do my best to try to reach and to save this cat's life. But as soon as I reached out to, to, to try to save the cat's life, it was in so much fear and so much terror and, and it was so confused about what was going on that it, it clawed my hand and it, it made me bleed. And for me, as a human, that's all it would take for me to go, nope, bye cat. <laughs> but that's more the reality of what hell is like. It's, a, it's an individual in the muck and mire and feces of life. And there's only one way, there's only one thing that can save them. And that thing that's willing to save them, unlike me, is actually willing to bleed for them, has bled for them. But they run and they fight and they refuse to let the one thing that can save them out of the muck and mire that they have found themselves in. And they fight and they kick and they claw. And so hell is much more 
of a God looking at us in the pit of our lives and going, I will let you have what you want. It's not what I want. I want to save you. I love you. My son gave his life for you. He bled for you. I don't want this for you. But I'm never going to force myself on you. See, in this life, and C.S. Lewis is one of the first persons that I ever heard this from, in this life, we will, while we're living, say, God, your will be done. And we will surrender our lives and give it to him. Or we will come to a place of judgment, and God will look back to us and say, your will be done. I didn't choose this for you. I didn't want this for you. But you wanted it your way, and now you're getting it your way. And so our call as Christians is to take a lesson from the last thing that we see happen in this story. It's to realize that when you're in hell, you don't want anybody else to go there. And my hope and my prayer is that we don't have to go to hell to realize that we don't want other people to be there. That we would see and understand that, man, this is an absolute terrible place. Jesus, we see the lessons you're trying to show us here and let us live our lives in such a way that no one ever finds their place in this place. Sometimes before I've made the point that Jesus went through hell so that we wouldn't have to. But as I think about the realities of hell, I don't think that is actually the case. That Jesus went through hell on the cross so that we wouldn't have to. I think that's underselling what Jesus actually went through. See, what Jesus went through on the cross is actually much worse than hell. Think about it like this. If Jessica, my beautiful, lovely wife, comes and to one of you guys says, I'm rejecting you, I don't ever want to talk to you again, I don't want to have anything to do with you. That may hurt your feelings. But if she comes to me, her first love, the father of her children, and to me, she says, I reject you. I don't love you anymore. I don't want to have anything to do with you. And turns her back on me. How much more and how much painful will that be to me than it was to you as someone who she has a minimal relationship with at all? And you got to understand that, that at the cross, we see that very same thing happening with God. Like you at best are his creation, but you are nothing compared to the intimate, loving, fatherly, son relationship that he had with Jesus. And as the father looks at the son and says, I'm turning my back away for this moment as you take on the sin of the world. I'm rejecting you and I cannot be with you and I'm turning my back on you in this moment. That pain, that anguish is far greater than the hell that you could have experienced in you not being with God. And he didn't just take it as a one-time thing. Jesus took my hell, your hell, your hell, your hell, your hell, every single person watching online's hell, and he took all that in about a three-hour span. So So to say that Jesus went through hell so that you wouldn't have to, is to greatly undersell what he actually went through on the cross for you. And friend, I want you to not miss those last two words, for you. If you have not ever put your faith and your trust and your hope in Christ, my prayer is that today you would understand that there is a very real place for your very real life called hell if you do not put faith and trust and hope in Christ. And he would long to see no one go there, but he is not going to force anyone to not go there. Your faith, your trust, your hope in him will be what allows you to receive a spot around the table in his family. And for those of you who are saved, I pray that you live differently. 
pray you live within the reality that there are people who are desperate to hear the grace and the gospel of love of Jesus Christ and that you give everything you can to make sure that reality is made true. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your love, your grace and mercy. As we come into this place of the brutal reality of what we see in your word, the fact that there has to be something like this or your love would not be just, that your holiness would not be true, that your righteousness would not be real. I pray it changes lives. I pray it doesn't leave us where we are, but I pray that we understand that whatever fear we would have in this life, whatever doubt we would have about your love, that those things can begin to fade when we stand in the love that you gave to us so that we would never have to experience the horrors of hell. In your name, Jesus. Amen.